Good afternoon. Welcome to today's show. This afternoon, the Iraq War. Pulitzer Prize winner David Finkel joins us with his new book, The Good Soldiers. Let me just read this to you. In January 2007, President George W. Bush announced a new strategy for Iraq. He called it the surge. Many listening tonight will ask why this effort will succeed when previous operations to secure Baghdad did not. Well, here are the differences, he told the skeptical nation. Among those listening were the young, optimistic Army infantry soldiers of the 216, the battalion nicknamed the Rangers. Fifteen months later, the soldiers returned home forever changed. Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter David Finkel was with them in Baghdad almost every grueling step of the way. Folks, this story is about our American brothers and sisters. I've always considered folks south of the border more than just neighbors. I've considered them our brothers and sisters. This story affects us all living here in North America. David Finkel. So basically, in the story of everyone in that Humvee on September 4th, you have the two wars. And it extends from a president who finds reason to say we're kicking ass all the way to the other end, which is a Humvee in which sits a kid named Duncan Cruxton, and it results in a headline in a newspaper that says three soldiers dead in eastern Baghdad. A 19-year-old named Duncan Cruxton lost both of his legs all the way up, lost his right arm and his shoulder, lost much of his left arm, and what little remained of Duncan Cruxton was very badly burned. But he didn't die. He was airlifted out back to the United States, you know, four months later, after Duncan had undergone 30 surgeries, his ears had fallen off, his... uh, nose had fallen off, eyebrows were gone, eyelashes bolted to a bed basically because uh, uh, there was so little of him left. He was still alive when Ralph Koslerich, the lieutenant colonel, was home at the end of his 18 days of leave and went to Brook Army Medical Center to see his wounded soldiers. This afternoon, Pulitzer Prize winner David Finkel and his new book, The Good Soldiers, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us this afternoon, our guest this afternoon is David Finkel. David Finkel has been a staff writer for the Washington Post since 1990 and has worked for the paper's national, foreign, and magazine teams. He has reported from Africa, Asia, Central America, Europe, and throughout the United States and was part of the Post's war coverage in Iraq, 
Afghanistan, and Kosovo. Finkel won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006 and has been a Pulitzer finalist three other times. Finkel lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, with his wife and two daughters. And we're talking about his book today, The Good Soldiers. Let's jump into it right away. What possessed you? Here you are. You're a dad. You've got two daughters at home and a wife. What possessed you to go all the way over to Iraq and embed yourself in combat? Oh, I covered... Sure, I had covered a few wars for the uh, Washington Post where I work. This seemed an interesting moment in terms of being a reporter and also a writer. The book, it's a ground-level view of what happened to a battalion of U.S. Army infantry soldiers during the surge. It begins in early 2007. It seems far away at this point, but if you think back to that time, the war was pretty much being seen as a lost effort by many in the American public, much of the American media, and even to some people in the military itself. The lost moment is an interesting moment to try to write about. At that point also, there had been an awful lot of books on the Iraq War, policy books, memoirs had come out, but no one, as far as I could tell, had done that kind of intimately observed ground-level book about what happens at the far end of policy to the soldiers on the ground. It's a riveting book, folks. The book is called The Good Soldiers, by the way. Our guest today, David Finkel, he's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Readily available at Chapters Indigo. Just to let you know, David, Chapters Indigo is Canada's version of Barnes Noble. Right across the country, easy way to get it, as always, just go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website, click on the book cover, and that'll take you right to Chapters Indigo online, where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. At the beginning of every chapter in this book, there's a little quote by Mr. George Bush. And this one is right at the beginning of the book from January 10th, 2007. I'm going to read his quote right now. Many listening tonight will ask why this effort will succeed when previous operations to secure Baghdad did not. Well, here are the differences. Now, that sets the book up perfectly, I feel. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. If, again, this was part of the speech President Bush gave the night of January 10th, uh, finally announcing what had been rumored for a while, the beginning of this thing called the surge. In that phrasing, people wondering what the differences will be this time. There was a lieutenant colonel named Ralph Kosslerich watching that night in Fort Riley, Kansas, a battalion commander. When he heard those words, he thought, we're going to be the difference, my battalion, my soldiers, and me. His battalion ended up playing a central role in what the surge came to be. They were sent to a pretty rough area in East Baghdad. They were on the ground for 15 months. And from that naive optimism, not only of Kosslerich's, but of the 800 soldiers who were part of his battalion, what happens over the next 15 months takes them away from naivety into a much more sobering reality. You wind us through this tapestry eloquently, incredibly. Could just tell us the story right now, because this one really pulled on my heartstrings. There's a lot of stories in this book, folks, that will do that. But Joshua Reeves stood out in my mind. I was wondering if you can tell the folks the story of Joshua Reeves. Well, I'd like to. It, it might be a longer answer than, than you might want to. No, that's here, fine. But, that's uh, fine. It's important. But I think before I talk about Josh Reeves, it's important to emphasize that 
in going over there, I made one promise to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Koslerich, which was that I was not coming over to write a book driven by any particular agenda, that it was not going to be a first-person book, it wasn't going to be a polemic of any sort, it was not going to answer the large question of whether the surge worked or didn't work, or even larger, whether the war was worthwhile or not worthwhile, that this was a much lower-level reported piece simply about the 800 soldiers of his battalion. Well, maybe before we get to Joshua, then, one of the questions I wanted to ask you after this story, what were your views before you went over to Iraq on the war? I don't know how to answer that without sounding silly. It's it's not that my views didn't matter. What I was curious about and open-minded about is what it was like to be a 19-year-old soldier heading over into that war at that moment, because that was the average age in the battalion. These were There were some older guys in there, but for the most part, the average age, 19 years old, most of these guys on their first deployment, most of them leaving the country for the first time, and off they went on an airplane to Kuwait on a helicopter into Baghdad, another helicopter that took them to this area in East Baghdad. They landed in the middle of the night, and then it all began unfolding slowly over their next 14, 15 months on the ground. Joshua Reeves was one of these guys. But the reason I said is it's a fairly long answer is, is when I begin each chapter with a quote from President Bush, which was said by Bush around the time that the chapter takes place, it wasn't to make fun of Bush in any way or to diminish what he was trying to do. The intent was to show how one war is so often two wars. There was the war as it was being fought in Washington with politics Mm -hmm. and policy and money, and then there was the war being fought by the soldiers. If there's a day that illustrates that as good as any day, well, there are two days. In late September 2007, this was a period of time right after General David Petraeus had been in Washington testifying about the success of the surge to Congress. And it was a huge deal here in the States. Petraeus left, went back to Baghdad, and then went to see the battalion I wrote the book about. And this is a big deal because no one ever came to this base in East Baghdad where these soldiers were. And one day, it wasn't just anyone, it was General Petraeus, who came to the base and sat shoulder to shoulder with the main character of the book, Lieutenant Colonel Koslerich. And Koslerich told Petraeus about their very best initiative so far, which had to do with putting a platoon of soldiers at a fuel station, which the weights for gasoline sometimes stretched to be two days. If you're in Iraq, you had to wait two days because these fuel stations were controlled by insurgents who would funnel money to make bombs to kill U.S. soldiers. By putting a platoon of soldiers there, the waiting time was down to 15 minutes. People were in a better mood because of that. And a key funding source for the insurgents had dried up. And as Kosslerich related this to Petraeus, Petraeus interrupted and said, I know about this. We need to do more of this in Baghdad. And the fact that Petraeus had said this to Kosslerich was a huge thing for Kosslerich, who had not had a whole lot of good days in Baghdad, but this was the very best day. And later, after Petraeus left, that very same day, Petraeus was gone. Kosslerich was standing outside, just feeling so good about this whole thing, when there was an explosion and a coil of black smoke into the sky, and it came from the fuel station where the platoon of soldiers was leaving for the day, and a roadside bomb had gone off into the Humvee containing Joshua Reeves. And in came Reeves into the aid station, just a shattered, shattered man, falling apart. And basically, Kosslerich watched as they tried so hard to save Josh Reeves' life. In the end, couldn't do it. This battalion lost 14 soldiers. Probably 10% of the battalion, maybe a little more, was wounded seriously enough to receive Purple Hearts. And as the injuries kept 
mounting and the number of dead soldiers kept climbing, you could see these naive young men turn, transform, start wondering what the mission was about, why they were there, what success meant. And so ultimately, the answer of whether the surge worked or didn't work is best told through how they felt when they finally came home. Now, it's funny. You used the word naive. Were you naive when you landed in country? Well, I, I sure didn't expect what I saw over there. I mean, I thought I knew a thing or two from having been part of the post-war coverage in Afghanistan, the beginning mm -hmm. of the Iraq War, and also in Kosovo. But no, nothing prepared me for, for what that place became. How did the two differ, Afghanistan versus Iraq? Probably the better comparison is Iraq at the beginning of the war. When I went over there, I was not embedded with the military. I okay. was kind of on my own driving a, uh, a four-wheel drive out of Kuwait and into Iraq. It was tense. It was a little rough at times. But I could roam pretty freely and do my job as a journalist. By the time I went back to do this book, so much had changed. I mean, we know it had changed, but still being on the ground and seeing how difficult and dangerous it had become was a real eye-opener. So it was difficult to move around like I usually do. The book is largely an American book. It's the experience of an American soldier. Someday I'd love to read a companion volume written by an Iraqi inside Baghdad during the surge who got it all right and put it all down and tells an eloquent, intimate story of what it was like to be on that side. Folks, if you're just joining us, The Good Soldiers is the name of the book. David Finkel is our guest this afternoon. He's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, of course. Easy way to get the book. Chapters Indigo right across the country, readily available. You can just go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website click on the book cover. As always, you can order it online from Chapters Indigo. Let's talk about Izzy. He was an interpreter, and I'd like you to tell the story of his daughter because people get injured over in Iraq all the time, but they're not allowed to be treated by American doctors. I was wondering if we can touch on that a little bit. The book is built around characters within the chronology. Izzy is mm -hmm. one of them. Izzy was the name he went by uh, because to be identified Sure. as having to do any work with the Americans could endanger not only the interpreter himself, but his family. So he went by the name Izzy, and he had a family in Baghdad. Izzy was someone who was so in love with the idea of America, the United States of America, that among the few possessions he carried with him wherever he went was a frequent flyer card for Pan American World Airways, which I guess went out of business, what, in the 90s sometime? Somewhere but, around there, yeah. but it was so valuable to him, and he loved the country so much. He became an interpreter. One day, Izzy was off the base, back with his family, and then a phone call came into Brent Cummings, who was the number two man in charge of this battalion. And it was from Izzy saying that a car bomb had just gone off outside of his building. It was a huge car bomb, dozens and dozens of people dead. And among the injured was his daughter. He needed medical help for her because they had gone to the local hospital, which was so overrun with people who had been injured in the blast that they basically told him to take his daughter away. They couldn't do anything for her. She was quite seriously injured. And Izzy was on the street corner wondering what to do and so upset and so worried. And Brent Cummings, who in many ways is the moral voice of the book, uh, found a way to get Izzy and his family onto the base, basically bent some rules to get Izzy and his family onto the base so she could be treated. But it was touch and go till the end because Izzy couldn't find a taxi cab. His daughter was bleeding quite seriously from a head wound. But eventually, late in the day, lit by the headlights of a taxi, here came Izzy and his family onto the base, and some soldiers scooped her up and ran her inside past any guards, and, and they treated her and, and saved her. I mean, it was a horrible thing. But mm -hmm. in the midst of this horrible place, sometimes small acts of decency would occur 
that were just beautiful and heartbreaking, if that makes sense. I want to read something from the book. I guess it's displaying the the tension, the inevitable battle that people are about to go into. They know what's coming, in other words. The most overwhelming thing about all of this was the silence it had brought. It was the silence of bending glass. It was the hush on camellia rooftops just before Sergeant Emery received a bullet to his head. It was the quiet of a Kansas snowfall just before some soldiers began to cheer. It was the silence just waiting to be broken, like the silence just before Joshua Reeves said, Oh my God. Like just before Duncan Crookston, and we'll get to his story in just a second, folks, said, I love my life. And so it was broken now with explosion after explosion all directed at Kazerlich and his soldiers as they maneuvered under a sky speckled with high white clouds and spreading black ones beneath. Now, folks, that's a writer. That is impeccable writing. It's just impeccable. It takes you right there in the best way possible. It's no wonder you won the Pulitzer. Every day over there had the potential to be an awfully difficult day. And to explain a little more about this area of Baghdad, the western side of Baghdad was by that point pretty much uh, a Sunni side of the city. And the eastern side was a Shia area, especially outside of Sadr City, the very well-known infamous slum we've all read about. This was the area of operations these guys got almost right up to the edge of Sadr City. And the weapon of choice in this part of Baghdad at that point was a type of roadside bomb called an EFP, which stands for Explosively Formed Penetrator. And it's worth explaining. It was a weapon that cost perhaps $100 to make and against it the very best Humvee with the thickest armor doors that the army offered simply didn't stand a chance. It was a tube filled with explosives and fitted onto the end of the tube was a copper disc about the size of a dinner plate, typically. What would happen is somebody would either, using a remote control device or just a trigger attached to a hidden wire, would stand in some shadows and wait for a convoy of soldiers to reach a certain point. The trigger would be depressed, the explosives would explode, and the copper disc on the end of the tube would move forward at such high velocity it would instantly become semi-molten, basically take on a tadpole shape. And it was so hot and moving so quick, it would just burn through whatever was in its way, whether it was the door of the Humvee or the soldiers inside. And what happened over time is the soldiers began to see that these EFPs were hidden everywhere. And that, that was one of the most insidious things, the mm-hmm. fact that they were hidden under piles of trash, they were hidden in animal carcasses, they were disguised as pieces of curving or wall. They were simply all over the place. As hard as you looked for them, you couldn't see them all the time, and they were going off all the time, and and the the well-aimed ones were taking off arms, taking off legs, ruining soldiers. So it was a very interesting thing to watch the calculations of a 19-year-old in the midst of such a landscape, deciding one day that he was going to sit with one foot in front of the other, so if the main charge happened to come into his Humvee that day, he'd lose one foot instead of two. Mm. Or he would sit with his arms tucked behind his body armor, or he'd lean away against from the door just a little bit, hoping that room, that adjustment might save him. Or he might tie a horseshoe to the front grill of his Humvee, as if that would ward off bad spirits or something. And this is what they did every day over time. It's the calculus of survival in a reality that one soldier called the normal abnormal. That's what a day was over there. It was just such a, a strange place. But they got used to it, they adjusted to it, they were good soldiers, and they went about their business. But that was the landscape being described here. Bombs going off, 
a particular type of bomb, these ESPs that were just so lethal. I want to read another quote from the book. Folks, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with David Finkel today, Pulitzer Prize winner. The Good Soldiers is the name of the book. He was over there in Iraq, and he spent time right on the ground with soldiers, and he's brought back their story. And that's what I want to get across. These are just ordinary human beings like you and I. They're our neighbors. They're our brothers. They're our sisters. They're over there doing godforsaken things. So we can sit here as I suck on my coffee. My biggest decision today was whether to get a large coffee or a small one. And they're over there putting their lives on their line. I want to read this quote. We had mentioned the story of Izzy before and his daughter. This is several months later, just to show how things have changed. And this is Brent Cummings speaking again. He says, man, I haven't felt this good since I got to this hellhole. That's what he said when he brought Izzy's daughter into the aid station. Now I'm going to show how things have changed in a few months. Now he's watching the water geyser. He simply says, stupid people, I hate them. Stupid fucking scumbags. Did that change inside you too? And I always come back to your own personal opinion too, because I know you're reporting on these fellas, but I imagine a lot of what they went through, you went through as well. I think what you just described of Brent Cummings is more instructive than talking about myself. I'm not trying to deflect, Mm -hmm. but I think the transition of Brent Cummings from someone who, at the beginning of this effort, was concerned, for instance, about trying to find a way to fish a, uh, a cadaver out of a septic tank in a building his soldiers had come across. You know, it was one more floating body in the wastelands of Iraq. But to Brent Cummings, it was this body was somebody's son and possibly someone's husband or father. And he thought the decent thing to do was to find a way to get that body out of there. And that's who Brent was at the beginning. And by the end of it, he still had a strong moral component, but he was someone who said what you just quoted. And at the very end, when everything just blew up entirely, as these guys prepared to go home, and they ended up in the worst war fighting of their entire deployment, Brent was someone who was watching a video image of an Iraqi firing at American soldiers, and he saw the guy who was screaming, die, monkey, die. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's the transition of a human being in war. Brent's about as good as they come. And in that story is the story not just of the 216, which is the battalion I wrote about. It's any battalion in this war, and it's really any war, and I would presume any battalion from any country in any war. It's not a new story that war is a bad thing, but the details do matter, I think. It's not enough if we open up the newspaper and we see a headline that says three soldiers die in eastern Baghdad from roadside bomb. You know, we might pause, we might read that and think, well, that's a sad thing, and then move on. There's actually much more of the story. And if I can talk about Duncan Cripps in a minute, I'd like to do that. The book, The Good Soldiers, our guest today, David Finkel, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. You can get it at www.brenthollandshow.com. Just click on the book cover, take you to Chapters Indigo, where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. There was a day, September 4th, 2007 when the quote from George Bush that begins the chapter, something he said when he landed that day in Australia and was on the tarmac at the airport and was asked by the Deputy Prime Minister how the war is going, and his answer was, we're kicking ass. And that was George Bush's answer of what the war was like on September 4th. Also on September 4th in eastern Baghdad, an EFP went off into a Humvee, and three soldiers immediately died, and the fourth one lost both of his legs, and the fifth one, a 19-year-old named Duncan Crookston, lost both of his legs all the way up lost his right arm and his shoulder, lost much of his left arm, and what little remained of Duncan Crookston was very badly burned. But he didn't die. He was airlifted out, first to Landstuhl, Germany, and then back to the United States and a uh, medical facility called Brook Army Medical Center 
you know, four months later, after Duncan had undergone 30 surgeries, his ears had fallen off, his uh, nose had fallen off, eyebrows were gone, eyelashes bolted to a bed, basically, because uh, there was so little of him left. He was still alive when Ralph Koslerich, the lieutenant colonel, was home at the end of his 18 days of leave and went to Brook Army Medical Center to see his wounded soldiers. Ralph Koslerich, in many ways, embodies the optimism of leadership in this particular army in this particular time, and he had a kind of a mantra every day. He'd, whatever was going on, he'd say, it's all good. And this was the one day that I don't think he said it at all because he walked into Duncan's room, saw what was left of him, and just kind of said under his breath, bastards. And uh, Duncan was being tended to by his 20-year-old wife and also his mother, who lived in Colorado, but he had relocated down to take care of uh, Duncan. A great family, just Brent, just a wonderful family. And, uh, and they had tried so hard to talk to him, to read to him, to, to get through to him, to just be there for him. And finally what happened is Koslerich uh, talked to Duncan, or tried to talk to Duncan, left the hospital, immediately went to the airport, flew back to Baghdad, went back to his desk, turned on his computer, and there was an email from Duncan's mother saying he had just died. So basically, in the story of everyone in that Humvee on September 4th, you have the two wars. And it extends from a president who finds reason to say we're kicking ass, all the way to the other end, which is a Humvee in which sits a kid named Duncan Cruxton, and it results in a headline in a newspaper that says three soldiers dead in the eastern Baghdad. And then it tells the rest of the story. The four months, the eyebrows, the ears, the family, the loving family, and ultimately the death that's just left so many people so devastated. The final thing here is I'm not suggesting that what happened to Duncan should be the primary thing in mind of policymakers as they decide what to do in Iraq, where they decide now what to do in Afghanistan. But it has to be part of the thinking. And I would say the same thing just for us as citizens. It's not enough for us to just read the paper and see that headline and pause for a minute. Just like we try to understand what might be behind policy, I think it's worth us trying as hard as we can to try to understand what the far end of the policy really is and have it all in mind as we come to our own conclusions about whether any war or this war is worth it. The book, The Good Soldiers, our guest today, David Finkel winner of the Pulitzer Prize. David, one final question, and I ask every guest this. Our show is syndicated across Canada from coast to coast to coast, primarily through the university system. So virtually, imagine yourself at a podium speaking to every Canadian university student and international students in the country. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner. What would you say to them? Thanks for paying attention to the book, to everything that's going on. I'm a uh, great believer in the more information people have, the better off their own thinking will be about what a life is worth and what it's for. If you come across this book, it's one more piece of bit of information about this faraway war, which turns out to affect all of us. Please do stay in touch. And thank you for this book. I've added it to my library, and certainly it would make a great addition to your library too, folks. It is extremely well, exceptionally well written. What a difference when you read something written by a Pulitzer Prize winner. Well, and thanks thanks very much for all your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, and all the very best to you and your family always. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye now. I sincerely want to thank David Finkel for joining us this afternoon and speaking about his profoundly moving book, The Good Soldiers. Quite a difference when you read a book of this quality written by a Pulitzer Prize winner. Kudos to Mr. Finkel, and kudos also to the men and women of the 216. Coming up on Brent Holland, Ted Sorensen. 
Ted Sorensen was the closest advisor to JFK. In it, he will take us into the Oval Office. Now, not only just in the Oval Office on a peripheral, but also in the Oval Office at, one can argue, the most crucial time in history, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Folks, for those of you too young to know, we were that close to nuclear annihilation. The only thing that saved us was the intelligence of men like Ted Sorensen. Wait till you hear this story. Your world will change, guaranteed. Ted Sorensen. president called me in that morning, Tuesday, October 16. He told me that to his astonishment and anger, because Khrushchev lied about what he was doing in Cuba, the Soviet ambassador, Anatoly Dobrynin, called both Bobby and me in on separate occasions to lie to us about what was going on in uh, Cuba. And Kennedy said that these U-2 airplanes taking pictures 50,000 feet above Cuba had then had those pictures developed, and it showed it was unmistakably the beginnings of Soviet missile sites, missiles that carried nuclear payloads and had a range capable of devastating almost any part of the United States and most parts of the Western Hemisphere, which includes Canada. As always, you can reach me at brenthollandshow at gmail.com brenthollandshow at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. For Carrie Graham, who edited this show, I'm Brent Holland. See you next time. Thank you.